In the concrete jungle of San Antonio's industrial area, past the blackened shell of a burned out motel and around the block from a dive bar called Bikinis, there sits a uh, mom and pop business that makes tarps for use in the oil field. And about once a week, I drive my semi up in front of the store and I find the forklift driver to load up the freight that they're shipping out that day. And it was here inside this ugly gray building that I stumbled upon one of the most beautiful women that I've ever laid eyes on. I call her the cobwebbed beauty. She's clad only in a white, wet silk blouse as if just caught in a downpour. Her back is slightly turned toward the camera, the curves of her body beckoning the onlooker toward their soft surfaces. Her brown eyes are cast downward, the lips slightly parted, and beads of water decorate her dark, exposed skin. She's 27 years old, and it's her picture that I stare at. It hangs poster-sized, taped to the wall of the warehouse, crisscrossed by cobwebs. Near the picture sits a Hispanic woman. Her face is a patchwork of wrinkles. Her body is hunkered over a sewing machine and her arthritic fingers are stitching together tarp after tarp to earn a paycheck. Her name is Mary. Mary is 67 years old and Mary, she is the woman in the picture. Forty years ago, when her youth was in full bloom, before children widened her hips and the worries of the world tended the skin beneath her eyes, the camera clicked and froze her beauty in time. And one day, she showed this picture, which was just a wallet-sized photo then, to one of her young co-workers, and his eyes widened as he looked from the picture to her and from her to the picture. Later he asked if he could borrow it, so he took it home and he had it blown up and with her permission taped it to the wall of the warehouse. When I asked Mary about the picture and she told me the story behind it, I couldn't help but ask her what she thinks of it hanging there for everyone to see and she gave me kind of a sheepish smile and she said, well, I like it there because it reminds me of who I used to be. Mary is my favorite kind of theologian, a blue-collar theologian, like many of the people around whom I work. Her body is a parable of the kingdom of humanity, and she is its interpreter. And like her namesake, she sings a psalm, only it's not a Magnificat, it's a psalm of lament. And she wrestles with the universal truth about the human condition that we are not what we used to be. I suppose there will always be branches of religion that like to talk a great deal about the soul, but for my money, there's no better way than to follow Mary's lead and to talk about the body. Yes, the sexy body that's captured in a photo and taped to the wall of a warehouse, and yes, the athletic body that's curved like a comma as it punctuates the bar over which a pole vaulter goes. But more than that, we need to contemplate less welcome images of the body, like the body twisted and bleeding that's pulled from the wreckage by the jaws of life, the obese body, the disabled body, the body of the bruised wife and the anorexic teen and the hospice patient and the white-scabbed leper. 
Because in one way or another, our bodies remind us that we are not what we used to be, that things are not right in this world. Our bodies are all parables that proclaim these mute sermons that all have the same theme, that we need to be unbroken, undirtied, unshamed. What if a preacher told you that next Sunday, he wants you to wear something to church that represents how you actually see yourself? What if he said that? And what if people did it? What might we see? Well, we might see a 15-year-old from the youth group that's dressed like a call girl. The boys in her school think that porn defines sexual normality, so they harass her to text them nude pictures. She gives the boys her body in exchange for cheap affirmation that she matters, that she's pretty. And then she sits in the pew and chews a communion wafer and mumbles the Lord's Prayer, but inside she feels dirty and crawling with shame. Maybe a 41-year-old wears a shirt that's two sizes too small. You see, he wore that same shirt two decades ago when his life came to a crashing stop. He was a drunk 21-year-old driving home from a frat party when a woman crossed the dark street in front of him. And every night since, he sees her face twisted in a scream. Now, he's married now and has three children and owns a lawn care business, but inside, he's still a junior in college, blood smearing his hands, the poison of self-loathing coursing through the veins of his body. And maybe there's a 33-year-old woman who wears a white t-shirt with the words human garbage printed on the back. Because after two disastrous marriages and three kids from three different fathers and a failed stint in rehab and a current boyfriend who's more into his drinking buddies than he is into her, those words pretty much sum up how she sees herself. I'm just trash. Use me up and throw me away. I damn sure don't deserve to be in this church. I'm just a piece of bodily filth littering the pew. I'll tell you how it was for me for many years. To church, I would have worn a black clerical shirt with the collar ripped out and a huge, gaudy, neon glowing scarlet A on the front. Because after cheating on my wife and destroying our marriage and ripping my children's lives apart and forfeiting my seminary job and being asked to leave the ministry, that's how I saw myself. A loser, yes, a failure, yes, but more than that, worse than that, it was like I was a zombie of shame. Dead but alive. Like Mary, I was not what I used to be. I was a pariah and untouchable, as if I were obligated like the ancient lepers when I stepped into church to take up the ancient cry of unclean, unclean. What about you? What would you wear that represents how you actually see yourself? The language that we use in church when talking about how we and the world are messed up is usually some variation of right and wrong. This is obedience and that is disobedience. This is moral and this is immoral. And I'm okay with that. That's fine. That's certainly biblical language. But 
I suspect that what really influences our decisions, that deep down motivation for how we live and move in the world isn't based on what's right and wrong. It's based on something that's more basic to the human condition. And it all has to do with dirt. The 15 year old in the youth group felt dirty. The woman with a human garbage t-shirt felt dirty. After I made a disaster of my life, I felt dirty. There was guilt and regret and disappointment and depression and all of that, yes, but at a more visceral level, at the core of who we are, what we struggle most mightily with is not whether we've done right or wrong, but whether we're clean or unclean. We are not what we used to be, where we should be, what we long to be because we've become dirty. In her monumental work, Purity and Danger, the anthropologist Mary Douglas defines dirt as matter out of place. And this matter out of place, this dirt, elicits from us the psychological response of disgust. Now we experience this every day, but we usually don't even think about it because it's so much an unconscious part of how we view ourselves and others and the world. For example, this morning, you probably showered and brushed your teeth and used deodorant because you don't want to have BO or have bad breath. Because for people to catch a whiff of our natural body odors is deemed unacceptable. We don't want to smell dirty and so disgust people. If we would have had soup for lunch, I'd worry about getting some of it on my beard and not realizing it. You see, now there's nothing wrong with the soup in the bowl or the soup in my mouth. And there's really nothing wrong with the soup that would be on my beard. I mean, it's all the same soup, isn't it? But because it's on my beard, it looks disgusting. Why? Because it's out of place. A soup beard is a dirty beard. And I have to tell you before I tell this next story that I do have my wife's permission to tell this. A few weeks ago, I was sitting on the couch with our dachshund, who's named Justice, when, when, we, when we heard Stacy scream and come running out of the bathroom. I looked over at Justice and said, there's a cockroach in there. And sure enough, there was. It had been on the bathroom counter crawling toward Stacy. Now, my wife wouldn't have had that same reaction if she had seen that bug on a sidewalk or in the grass or in an alley because that's where cockroaches belong. But not in our house because there it's out of place. It's disgusting. It was dirty. Now, where this gets most enlightening as well as most frightening is when matter out of place, dirt, are people out of place, human dirt. In our moral mapping of the world, we all become politicians because we all resort to a sort of gerrymandering, carefully sectioning off boundaries based on how morally fit or unfit people are that may benefit or harm us. Certain people who don't act or look a certain way give us the creeps and so we keep our distance away from them. We, we shun them and we, we certainly don't touch them. 
They look, they smell, they behave in an unacceptable way, a, a way that's not in keeping with society's norms in an out-of-place manner. And so psychologically, we label them as unclean, un, as dirty. In my little hometown back in Texas, locals still refer to Caucasians who fit this description as white trash, just like Reba sang in her song. This all reminds me of the well-known autobiographical story that Brennan Manning once told. He woke up in a doorway one morning, and ironically, it was April Fool's Day. He was still in a fog from last night's liquor, and there was vomit stinking from his sweater. And he looks down the street to see this attractive blonde woman coming toward him with her young son in tow. And all of a sudden, the boy breaks loose from his mother's grip and runs up to Brennan Manning and stares down at him. The mother charges forward, covers her son's eyes, and says, don't look at that filth. That's nothing but pure filth. And like we might do to get a mangy dog out of our path or a dirty diaper off the sidewalk, she kicked Brennan Manning. Now, there was a mother with a highly developed sense of dirt, of matter being out of place, of the disgusting quality of this drunk who might have polluted her young son just by his very existence. Brennan was unclean. He wasn't what a human was supposed to be, and so he disgusted her. But I guarantee you there's one thing this woman did not realize. Her disgust, as strong as it was, was nothing was nothing like the disgust that Brennan had for himself. Because nobody, and I mean nobody, feels the untouchable nature of the untouchable like the untouchable one himself. Every hour of every day, the categories of clean and unclean, dirty and non-dirty regulate our lives biologically, socially, morally, and of course, religiously. And it's religious dirt that needs our utmost attention because it's in the religious sphere that we feel dirt and disgust most intensely. And yet, strange as it sounds, it's also where the cat seems to have got the church's tongue. Now, the language does sneak in here and there in my own tradition, in the opening confession and absolution. We say that we are sinful and unclean. You'll hear a lot in evangelical churches when they talk to teens about sex, what kind of language? Sexual purity. Notice not sexual morality or making the right sexual choices, but sexual purity and impurity. That's the language of cleanness and uncleanness, dirty and undirty. And I can't help but think of the old poison song, Talk Dirty to Me. Now, if if you know the Bible, you know that this dirt language is right at home in Leviticus, as well as the rest of the Old Testament. But it's not just there, it's all over the Gospels. Remember the hemorrhaging woman? Because of her ritual uncleanness, she touches Jesus' clothing surreptitiously, hoping she isn't caught. 
The Pharisee is shocked when Jesus just sits there while an unclean woman touches him, weeps on his feet and dries them with her hair and pours perfume on them. And worst of all, Jesus sat at the table with those who were deemed to be dirt, whose lives were out of place, whose deeds had made them unworthy of the bleached orthodoxy of the spick and span Pharisees. He enjoyed table fellowship with those who were deemed objects of disgust by the religious superstars of the day. We're here under the theme of the grace of God in divided times. And in my opinion, there are few things more divisive in the church and in society than matters relating to dirt. Now, we may pay lip service as much as we want in our churches about them having open doors. But you and I both know that if certain kinds of people walked in, and started worshiping there on a regular basis, that certain members with a very low tolerance for dirt would be phoning the pastor or priest to snitch and bitch about it. Those types of people don't belong here, they'd say. The dirt language, the language of disgust, is a language of shaming. And we may take up the chant of forgiveness for all, but we have all experience the reality in the animal farm of the church in which all sins are equal, but some are more equal than others. And because sex is so closely associated with purity and impurity, clean and unclean, any sexual sins for sure are going to elicit disgust for those with a nose for sniffing out dirty people, people who aren't the way they're supposed to be. And this not only leads to division, it leads to shame. The kind of shame that Mary experienced when she saw her aging body compared to the pristine image of her youth on that poster. It's the kind of shame that I once felt when I walked into a church that had once known me and loved me when I was clean, but when I dirtied myself, not a single person so much as looked at me or shook my hand because I was now dirty and thus the object of mute shaming. And the thing was, like Brennan, no one knew this better than I did. I walked into that church feeling like a 400-pound man must feel walking into Gold's Gym, teeming with people with sculpted bodies. My struggle was the same that many others have. It's a struggle not so much with what we've done with guilt, but with who we are and with what we become with shame. Now, it might sound strange, but I suggest that as we in the church seek to minister to those who feel themselves to be dirty, who are trapped in this vortex of shame, that we look to the book of Leviticus for a model of ministry. This biblical book that's earthy, that's quintessentially quintessentially physical in a, in a blood and guts sort of way is the perfect place to find something that addresses the true physicality of shame. In the language of Leviticus, such people who, who, who are like this are subject to being outside the camp. They might be soldiers who are returning from war who literally have blood on their hands. They might be those with a skin disease that renders them ritually unclean, but 
whatever the reason might be, they're outside the camp, they're on the friends, they're living the life of dirt by being out of place. So what in the world is God going to do with these people? Write them off? Tell them to clean themselves up? Let the local Philistine charity take care of them? No, he comes to them. God comes to them in the person of his priest. The clean and holy priest goes out to the unclean and dirty person. He crosses the ritual boundary and he brings with him companionship and mercy and the healing agents that God himself has provided. The priest leaves the kingdom of the well to climb the wall into the kingdom of the sick. He doesn't wait for the one full of shame to bring himself back. God goes outside the camp to bring him back home, cleansed and sanctified and welcomed once more into the fellowship of Israel. This Levitical model of ministry is in part the model that Jesus himself followed, only he upped the ante. He not only went outside the camp to spend time with those who were shamed, Jesus put skin to skin. In Matthew 8, a man with leprosy kneels before Jesus with a simple request to be made clean. What happens next is extraordinary. Jesus does cleanse the man, but only after touching him. According to purity traditions, according to societal standards, Jesus first should have cleansed him and then and only then touched him. But he didn't. He first made contact. He first physically expressed solidarity with this one who was outside the camp. He first reached out and expressed intimate love and concern and mercy with this man while he was still defiled. Then, by his word, he cleansed him. It's here that we see Jesus' ongoing mission in the church. He's a dirty Messiah because he's ready and willing to touch skin to skin with dirty sinners. And he's still living out the ramifications of his incarnation. He becomes all that we are, that we might become all that he is. The word becomes flesh and slums among us. He doesn't remain safely ensconced within some castle of moral superiority, but he goes outside the camp, outside the zone of suburban sanctification into the haunts of unholiness. In other words, he goes to where we live with our shame, with our stained lives, with our feeling of always existing in a world where nothing is as it should be. Christ becomes the priest par excellence who searches out lepers and kisses their scabs. That's the most amazing part of Jesus, that he, being the holy of holies, takes that holy of holies out to us. That's why the temple veil was torn in two on the day of his death, not to let us in, but so that God would come out and bring out with him his holiness. He's the walking and talking and touching, healing tabernacle of God who everywhere he goes is unbreaking and undirtying and unshaming us. He not only brings us back into the camp, he brings us back to the Father. No longer as pariahs and garbage, but as kings and queens for whom the angels 
throw a parade. Because our problems are full-body problems. His is a full-bodied ministry, not just a soul ministry. In his book, Mortal Lessons, the author, who's a surgeon, Richard Selzer, tells this amazing story. He writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in a palsy, clownish. The tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles in her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the, term, the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close that I see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. The gods did indeed appear in ancient Greece, but I don't think any of them would have humbled himself to twist his own lips to accommodate someone who wasn't the way she used to be. But I know a God from Israel who would. Thank you.